0: as we really begin our journey through the book of Esther, we're going to begin with a message entitled, A Royal Rejection. Well, hello, sir. (laughs) You're welcome. Yeah, you might as well come in and join us. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. So we're beginning through Esther, and we're going to have a look through it. And I want to start off really by just noting this, and this is what we get from Esther chapter number one, that... Life is not just a series of random, you know, freak accidents. Life is not totally unplanned. Uh, There is a God behind all, a sovereign God that has his hand behind all. What I mean by this? I mean life has meaning. God knows what's going on. God is in control of everything. He's sovereign. The sovereignty of God is one of the greatest blessings for the believer and yet one of the greatest burdens for the unbeliever. But like we talked about this morning, that God is good. And how for a believer, that's beautiful. And how for an unbeliever, the fact that God is good means that they're in terrible trouble with the Holy God. But God is is always working out his purposes and certainly amongst his people. God is always working. He's always moving. We just at times do not see what God is doing. And at times, if we're honest with ourselves, even when we look at it, we say, how could God be doing anything good here in the situation that's going on in my life, whatever it may be, you look at it and think, where's God in this? How is God moving in this? What are his purposes in this? And sometimes, use the honest truth, it won't be till we get to eternity that we'll truly understand why God was allowing what he allowed or doing what he did. We may not get the answer in this life, but sometimes... In this life we do. It just takes a little bit where we look back and we can see, oh my goodness, I can't believe how amazing God was there. I didn't even see him. But he was moving all these pieces around and he was sovereignly acting in the background and he brought good out of a bad thing. God is an expert. I want you to hear this. God is an expert of bringing good out of bad. An expert at it. If Calvary's Cross doesn't tell you that, I don't know what will. You can look at the stories of all the uh, saints of the past. You can look into some of the great missionaries and the difficulties they had. You can look into some of the hymn writers and the difficulties they had. I don't know if you know too much about Joseph Scriven. Joseph Scriven was a uh, missionary from Ireland, but he was a hymn writer. And uh, he um, had tragedy in his life, As, as many have. He had tragedy in his life. Just before his wedding, his fiance was killed in an accident, uh, a year later, as he writes to his mother, and his mother was sick and he was across the Atlantic from her, and he, and he writes to her, "What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere?" We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And Joseph, going through a terrible time, but he, he looks to the character of God and he takes solace in God. He runs to God as his shelter and pains those words. And how many people have been blessed by those words, encouraged by those words, hailed by those words as they go through the valley experience and it happens. It is well. Probably is the greatest hymn of them all, I think, probably. There's loads of great hymns. It is well, written out of tragedy. And how many people have been blessed in their walk when they've been on their knees or they've been struggling and they have heard the words of that great hymn and took them into their heart. It is well with my soul. God's an expert of bringing good out of bad he's always working and as we start off in esther and we're going to see that you know there's there's some bad situations that are arising and it's going to get worse as we get into esther but god is using these things and he's going to bring good out of these things no matter what it is god can work in it and is willing to work in it sometimes we just don't see it but god's always moving and he's always working. So what I wanted to do is just go through chapter 1 and, and really uh, run through the narrative. We're not We're not going to... Get into too much of kind of application. We just really want to have a look at what's going on as we will have plenty of time as we go through Esther, as we're going to start to pick it apart. But I wanted to go through it and have a, have a look through it and, and just really detail the narrative and, and set the scene and, and really think about this point that even in this, in the, in the mess that's going on in chapter number one, in the, in the debauchery that's going on in chapter one, God is still able to bring good out of bad. Now, as we go through this, many preachers get accused of being three points in a poem, right? That's what that's what preachers do, and and to be honest, again, God's a Trinitarian. I've said this before. You know, three is a, is, a, is a special number in the economy of God. That's why I do three points as a sermon. Usually, it just works that way. It fits. Tonight you've got six points. Six points. How about that? Are you ready? What well, time's dinner? Doesn't matter, you're here for six points. And we'll go through it. Right, point number one. Let's have a look. We want to look at the details really. You know, so here we go, we're introduced. Let's read first one chapter one. Now it came to pass in the days of Azarus, this is Azarus which reigned from India even into Ethiopia, over a hundred and seven and twenty provinces. And in those days, when the king Azores sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and four score days." So here we're introduced to this great banquet, and you know, for Eastern rulers this was a common practice of the day. This wasn't um, anything um, unusual, maybe in its size and its extravagance possibly, but in terms of the principle, they, they often did this, Eastern rulers, because it gave them opportunity usually to show off their, their, their power, their rule, their riches, and to play up as the, as the, the deified ruler of, of Mede and, and the Medes and the Persians. And uh, this, is, this is what Azarias is doing. Now, Azurus or Azahurus or however you want to pronounce that, I don't really care how you pronounce it. He's dead, so he doesn't, he's not going to take offense. But that's his title. That's his title. It means uh, high father or venerable king, similar to Pharaoh or Caesar. I believe that this man is uh, Xerxes the Great of Persia. So this is, if you've seen the film 300, uh, you know that great uh, standoff there between uh, Greece and, and Persia. This is this king, uh, Xerxes, that's it's in, in there. He's a historical character. And he's organized these banquets because he's about to embark on that campaign. He's about to embark and attack Greece. Because at this point, um, Median persia was, was the power. And Greece had its, had its um, uprising, if you like. It was growing. And of course, um, to expand the empire, Xerxes has his eyes on Greece. He doesn't want them getting ahead of themselves. This, is, this empire, actually, of Xerxes, is really the last big world empire to come from the east. After this, things start to change, and of course we have the Roman rule come in. But So he, what he's doing here, as we've read in verses 1 to 4, you know, he's put on a banquet for the provincial officials. 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, massive. He puts on a banquet the last six months, and it's, it's so that these, all these different provinces, all these different uh, rulers from, that are under his uh, umbrella, if you like, can come to the banquet be impressed by the king but what he's really doing he's trying to raise support for his invasion he wants the people behind them so he's organized this banquet um, for these people of the provinces to come where he is able to show off in front of them these are uh, um, you know six months of festivities. As he tries and goes on the, uh, the offensive campaign, it's you know it's similar to our ridiculous politicians that whenever they're trying to court your vote for an election, they'll go on their campaigns for months and promise you all sorts of things and try and get you uh, to sign up for them. This is what he's doing. He's raising support for this invasion that he's uh, planning to go on. So he raises this. Uh, banquet for his provincial officials. Then, verse 5 to 9, after that's finished, there's another um, banquet that's put on for seven days. This is for the palace officials. So he deals with all the, all the high men, all the nobles, all the people of influence across his empire. They come out for a period of six months where he wines and dines them, basically, to try and impress them so that they will put money in and put support in and be with him as he goes to invade Greece. In verse 5, pick up there. When these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan, the palace. So, this is for the palace officials. This is for those closest. Both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the king's palace. So, seven days for these festivities, where there were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, the silver rings, pillars of marble, the beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red, blue, and white and black and marble, and they gave them drinking vessels of gold. The vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king, and the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of the house they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also time the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to the king. So seven days. This is just absolute opulence, you know. Gorge yourself, feast yourself, the best of everything. I mean, the king's really going for it here. So seven days. So this is the details that we have. Next. Move that on. The drunkenness. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bissa, Harbuna, Bigtha, Abagtha, Tithar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of the king to bring Queen Vashti before the king with the royal crown. So I want you to notice there, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry. now we've already read, there in uh, verse eight, that drinking wasn't obligatory; it wasn't compelled. Not like today when you go to some events that if you say, you know, I'm not drinking, don't drink, really, they'll be like, why not? Why not? Why not? What's wrong with you? You broken? Drink, drink, drink. This wasn't compelled. This wasn't forced. This was choice. And of course, the context of the drink, the, the alcohol level, of the drinks different. But it's seven days. So even if the alcohol's weaker. Seven days of it, <laughs> you're going to start to feel it. This is why they party for so long, right? Because the alcohol's weaker. But still, it says the king's heart was merry. On the last day of the feast, the king's heart was merry. So here he is in a place where he's under the influence. And he's not going to make the best of decisions. Because honestly, our best decisions are never made when we're drunk. never 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 this king was drunk and his drunkenness opens him up to the nonsense that's going to follow now I'm not here to preach about alcohol all I can say is for sure is that the bible speaks very strongly against drunkenness very strongly why? why? Because it racks things. It racks things. I spoke about R.U. this morning. Um, you know, a lot of you were there for RU. You remember the people that came. You remember the grip the alcohol had in them. Dangerous stuff. Same people that are ravaged by it, broken by it, trapped by it, homeless from it, penniless from it. There's a Japanese proverb that says, First a man takes a drink, then the drink Takes a drink, then the drink takes the man. Have it happens. It So this king is drunk and he's going to do something daft, which leads us to the demand. Verse 11, read a little bit of that. The demand is simply this to bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the royal crown to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. Now, the queen, as we've read in verse uh, number 9, She's having a separate feast for the women. She's not part of all this. So she's away somewhere else in the palace in Shushan, verse 9. She's entertaining the women. And then there's this call that's made in verse uh, 11 from the king to bring Vashti the queen before the people. Now, what does he want to do? Does he he want to... There's a fight going on in there, isn't there? Have they been drinking? (laughs) So there's. There we go. Sorted out. <laughs> Fast is to come before all the men, not for anything good. Not for anything good. Not to simply just uh, have a chat with her. But she's there to be paraded, to be brought before all the, the men like a piece of meat. That's what's happening, that's what's going on. The king wanted to display her beauty before the man as a prized possession, as a piece of meat. He's not treating her as an equal. He's not treating her as anything other than something to be shown off. Now remember, the king's in a drunken state and in his drunken state, he's called for her. My wife's beautiful. Now, how how he was wanting her to be displayed, the level of sexual immorality, we don't know. But we can guess. We can guess. Now, how does Vashti respond to the demand? Let's see if I can get this to work. Verse 12. Let's read. There's defiance. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore, the king was very wroth, and his anger burned within him. So Vashti, fair play to her. She's not having it. She's not having it. Now, this is not like today. King's word was authoritative. You defied the king. But she did. She did. I'm not doing it. I'm not going. I'm not going to do it. Now, the king doesn't respond very well to this in verse 12. In fact, he's enraged, he's wroth, and his anger burned in him. Do you remember our message from this morning? Angry people do stupid things. This is what's going to happen. His anger burned within him. He's in the right. He's the king. How dare she ignore him? King's anger burned within him. It's consuming him. The uh, Italian poet uh, Alentino wrote this, Angry men are blind and foolish. For reason at such a time takes flight, and in her absence, wrath plunders all the riches of the intellect, while the judgment remains the prisoner of its own pride. In other words, like we said this, this morning, angry decisions are usually terrible ones. And that's what happens here. That's what happens with the king. His anger burns within him. It consumes him. He's like, this can't be happening. There's no way this is going to happen. How dare she? When you're in that place where the anger is upon you and you start to think, how dare she? You justify your own actions. King thinks he's in the right. Pride starts to surface. I'm the king. She's my wife. She can't do that to me. He's not thinking. He's not seeing the other person. There's no uh, empathy or apathy there Empathy there at all. He just wants the, uh, his wife to come in and to be shown off in front of all the revelers at the banquet. So here he is. He's burning with anger, which leads to the dilemma in verse 15. Look at verse 15. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to the law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of king Azurus by the chamberlains. So here it is. Let's go back up to verse 13. Look at that. Then the king said to the wise men which knew the times, for so was the king's manner towards all that knew law and judgment. So the king has asked the question. The question in verse 15 is, What shall we do? What shall we do unto the queen at Vashti according to the law? Because she has not performed the commandment of the king. Simply this, the king has spoken, Vashti has not responded in the right way. He goes and he consults, verse 13, the wise men which knew the times. What does this mean? I think this points to this kind of eastern uh, mindset of searching the stars and the signs to get Direction. We see this in the book of Daniel, do we not? How we see that Nebuchadnezzar and, and further on, we see this concept in the, in the east where they do look to the stars. They do look to all these things. They give them signs and what they should do, what should be done next. The king pulls in these mystic advisors and he says, what shall we do? What are we going to do with this queen that has defiled us? So, Surely there must be some signs that you've seen of the way forward in this, oh wise man. And you know, as we look at that, we look back all those years ago and we think, well, you know, what are they up to really looking at at, at the sky for signs? Nothing different than what people do now. I'm absolutely amazed. I heard this on on the radio the other day and it made me chuckle. It made me absolutely chuckle, it really did. But anyway. (laughs) That basically the the union for for I'm laughing I'm sorry I should um, it made me made me laugh the union for tarot card readers and um, you know what do you call them mediums and all that are (laughs) and star sign readers uh, the union for them part of the union are all up in arms because AI so you're aware AI is kind of taking over where the computer will just fool you and it'll think, you think that you're talking to somebody and you're not. You're talking to a robot that's spewing out information. They're getting upset because the AI is going to do them out of a job. <laughs> so so now when you go and get your star signs read at, at uh, you know, the seaside or whatever, it'll be a computer telling you. It may as well be a computer telling you because it's nonsense. It's nonsense. People get caught up in these things. You know, with mediums and stuff, I'll, I'll tell you this now, absolutely believe this. Uh, this is a hill I'll die on. That if you go to a medium, there's, there's two, two, two possibilities there. Number one, they there's charlatan. 90% of them are, maybe more. The other possibility is, is simply you're dealing with somebody that's possessed. And is under the influence of the devil. And you don't want anywhere near that. None of it. None of it. But this king, he brings him in, and he, you know, he, he wants some advice. I have no doubt that a man of the power of this king, you know, is really paying lip service. He's pretending. I think he knows what he wants to do. He just wants somebody else to tell him so he feels better in doing it. And that' what we're like as people when we know what we want to do. But we don't want to be seen to be doing what we want to do. So we get people in. And if we get enough people in that say, yeah, that's a good idea. You go, oh, yes, see, I'm going to do that. That is a good idea. That's how our officers' meetings run anyway on the church. (laughs) But that's the way it is. We want people to agree with their ideas. And and this is what he does. So he calls this cabinet meeting. He has these seven counsellors that come along. And uh, they convince him to act. Look at verse 16. And Mamucan answered before the king and the princes, Fast the queen, hath not done wrong to the king only, but also uh, to all the princes and to all the people that are in all the provinces of King Azurus. So here the um, uh, advisor comes along and does what advisors of this ilk, these political pariahs these people that live and just will go wherever the power is. You know, you see it in politics all the time. And whenever there's anything that goes on, you have these people that come in and they will take a a molehill and they will turn it into a mountain. And that's what's going on here. This guy comes along and says, she's not only done wrong to the king, but to all the princes, but to all the people that are in the provinces. So basically, she's wronged everybody. Not just you, king. It's, it's bigger than you, king. This is everybody. <laughs> Absolutely everybody. Why? Look at verse 17. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so they shall despise their husbands in their eyes. When it shall be reported, the king Azaraz commanded vastai the queen to be brought into him before him, but she came not. Not only have you been wrong, king, but this, this this wrong is going to spread through your kingdom. And and if you don't do anything about this tomorrow, there's going to be an uprising. And your kingdom's going to be in ruins. Verse 18, Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Meda say this day unto all of the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen. Thus shall there rise too much contempt and wrath. So here there's clear fear going on from these political advisors. Fear mongering to say, you know, if you don't deal with this king, if you don't do something now, your kingdom's going to crumble. It's going to be in disarray and it's going to be your fault because you haven't acted on vast ties, disobedience towards you. You want to do something about it. Verse 19, if it please the king, Let there go a royal commandment. These guys, honestly, they they make me sick. Listen to their language. If it pleased the king. These are, I mean, in every kind of, you know, uh, uh, fairy tale story of castles and all this sort of stuff, there's always the king's advisor. They're little wormy type people. If it pleased the king, let there go a royal commandment from him. Let it be written among the law of the Persians and the Medes. For those that don't know, the law of the Persians and the Medes was that once it was given, it couldn't be rescinded. Once the king spoke, once it was in the law, that was it. No going back, no turning back. It was settled, it was done. Uh, it was to be viewed as eternal. So let it be written among the laws of the Medes and the, the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered that fast I come no more before the king as a And let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all this empire for its great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor both to great and small. So here's what they propose. They say that there's to be a law put out that Vashti no longer is queen, that she can't come before the king anymore. She's rebelled, then that's it. She's out, she's done. But more than that, this letter is to go out, and it's to go out to all those uh, households to reinforce the fact that the man is to rule that home and the woman is to be subservient to him so again this is this is escalated from one single event because of these people have come in and puffed the smoke in and the king's pride is being fueled and he's been told that if he doesn't do something the kingdom's going to crumble worse than that people are going to look at him and mock him and say he was the king that couldn't control his own wife so his, his pride is hurt his feelings are hurt all um, the, the kind of emotions that he's going through. He's angry. And off the back of that, he then makes the decision. Verse 21. And the saying pleased the king and the princes and the kingdom according to the word of Mamukin, For he sent letters unto all the king's providences into every province according to the writing thereof, to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house and that it should be published according to the language of every people. Here the king acts. He listens to the advice of those that have made this something more than it should have been. And he acts and he puts this law in, sent out to all. Francis Bacon wrote in his essays, a man that studies revenge, keeps his own wounds green, which otherwise would heal and do well. If the king had just sobered up a little, if he'd have took some time, stepped away from it, looked at the bigger picture, he probably would have never opposed his wife. After all, really and truly, she was showing more character than he did. She was being more honourable than he was, and he was king. She was in the right, and he was in the wrong. He was parading her. But he didn't. He was motivated by anger, revenge, wanted to heal his pride. So the king agrees to the advice, and then Vashti is deposed. Disposed. His couriers send out the letters across the province. That the king has acted, Vashti has been removed from her position, and more than that, every home has being reinforced with the truth that women are to say silent, and the man is to have the rule and the reign. The king has issued an edict that's come out of faulty thinking. Why? Because he's emotional. He's drunk. Probably tired. Seven days. His pride's hurt. And he makes a silly decree. And off it goes. And when it's done, it can't be undone. We're going to see this behavior again later in Esther from this king. But it's the law of the Medes and the Persians. Nothing can be changed. Nothing can be uh, taken away from it. It is what it is. And off it goes. So the decree sent forth. Now, Phasite is is not immediately replaced at this point. She's taken from her position. She's not replaced because what happens is um, between the end of verse 22 and then verse number one of chapter two, the king goes off to fight his war. He goes off to fight against Greece, and he's thoroughly defeated. You know, you, you can go and look in, in the history books for this. He's thoroughly de- defeated. And uh, when he comes back, no doubt, licking his wounds, feeling sorry for himself. He wants to um, pleasure himself by, by bringing a new queen in, basically. And that's when the search for the queen takes place. But we'll deal with that next uh, Sunday, Lord will it. But what we want to, ha- want to talk about as we finish up this, and really, really I want you to see is that in these events that have happened, there's nothing good, nothing good at all. The king's behavior is outrageous. He's treated his wife deplorably. Fashtai stood and rightly stood and said, I'm not going to dance in front of all these strangers and all these men. I'm not going to be paraded like a piece of meat. I'm not doing it. And she paid. She paid for her stand. Her position was taken away from her. But these are the things, bad all they may be, That are going to lead to us. As we look at chapter number 2. Where we're going to see that Esther comes in. To be the queen. To take a place. And ultimately later in the book. Esther is the one that stands before the king. And stops the entirety of the Hebrew people being exterminated. So what's going on in chapter number 1. Is even though God is not mentioned once. God is moving in this. How? I don't know. He didn't cause it, yet he allowed it. This is the, the amazing thing that I've I, I talked to you before about. About God's sovereign will, but yet man's uh, choices. That God is always sovereign. And like, like the cross, we talk about Pilate and we talk about those. Could they at any point have chose a different path? yes. Would have Calvary always happened as it did? Yes. How do we work that out? We don't. That's God. He's sovereign. And all I know is that in Esther chapter number one, in the midst of that debauchery, in the midst of those banquets, in the midst of that king's bad behavior, he has used that to bring Esther to a point in chapter number two where she's the queen for such a time as that, what I know, I know that God is an expert of bringing good out of bad. I think of our, our mind and Claire's testimony, and you know, I'm sure most of you have heard it, but really, the, 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 the kind of point that really had the impact that, that spoke to us was, spoke to Claire really, was Claire's auntie Dan. And that was the thing that the Lord used to bring Claire to her knees before the Lord. And her coming to God, it then brought her to a place which strengthened her to then lead me to the Lord. And I look back on that and, and think, God meant that for good. God knew what he was doing. He didn't say it at the time. I'm sure Claire didn't say it at the time. What good could come out of it? Her auntie, closest to her in terms of spiritual advice, the one that didn't judge her, the one that she was able to run to in her, in her days of terrible behaviour. And I've only heard half of it. And honestly, if it was my church and it was Addison, I don't know what I'd do with her. I really don't. Thankfully, my daughter's an angels so don't worry about that. <laughs> he says, No. But in all that difficulty and hardship, God was working. You Maybe sit here tonight and you can think about your testimony before the Lord, how you came to know Him or, or whatever, how or He showed His face in the most difficult of times, and you look back and think, my goodness me. I couldn't say it at the time, but God was doing something good there. That's our sovereign God. And out of this bad situation will come a new queen. Out of this situation, Esther will be risen up and it's Esther who has risen up for such a time as that. Now I wonder, as we close tonight, what has God risen us up for now? I don't believe in accidents. I don't believe in coincidences. I believe in a sovereign God. Somebody said to me last, last week, oh, I got a um, phone call at just this time, when I was feeling this way from, from a, another believer, that was strange, wasn't it? No, it wasn't strange. I was a sovereign God that cares and loves for you. But what is it? Why are we here? Each and every one of us, as we said, why? It's for something. I know it is. What is it for? It's for the commission. What we're called here to do, that we might show others the truth of God, that we might be Esther's, Mordecai's, whatever it is, that we might answer our call in our time, knowing that God has brought us to this point for such a time. God's providence has brought us all in the gallery. Providence has been defined as the hand of God in the glove of history. Now the stage is being set for Esther to enter, for Mordecai to enter, the characters that we looked at last Sunday night, for Haman to enter, and we're going to see God sovereignly work. But we are his characters today. We're the ones that are raised up, I believe, for such a time as this. Hopefully through the book of Esther we're encouraged that God will use all the bad and bring it to good. Let's pray.